uh, much. But when I was younger, I, my family and I, we used to go to Korea. That's where, I'm, where my family's from. We used to go there probably every other year uh, to visit relatives. Uh, and so every time we went, we would go to the capital city of Seoul, as where most of my relatives are from. Uh, and when we would walk around the city, I mean, it's a highly densely populated, developed city. Uh, and so there's all these like little alleyways and streets that we'd go into. And every single time we'd go into these alleyways or streets, there was this very peculiar smell that I would smell. And I'm not exactly sure what it was or what it is. Maybe it's a combination uh, of the air quality. Maybe it's a combination of food, compost, yeah, some Korean food, some uh, other things I don't want to mention. Uh, but it's a combination of that where it's that, that scent is very potent. Uh, and, and, I, and I'll never for, forget it. Uh, and so when I come back, or even today when I walk around the city, uh, like downtown Seattle, or even when I used to live in L.A., there's a scent, that similar scent, that I would actually experience as well. I, it's okay, bud. And, and every time I would go into these alleyways and, and streets, it's that very scent that I would smell, like even in Seattle, that would actually remind me of when I used to travel to Korea to visit my family. And it wasn't always this pleasant smell. And it's funny because I would always tell my friends, if I'm around friends or other people, I would say, the stench, this whatever the smell is, maybe in Pioneer Square, maybe in, in, in uh, Pike Place or whatever it is, I would say, man, it reminds me of my family back home in Korea. I'd say, I'd say really, what does that mean? Well, not, not exactly in that kind of way. And, and all that to say is that many of us, you and I, uh, we have this idea of smell that takes us back somewhere. We all have this sense or fragrance of, or, or whatever that might be that triggers an emotion or a memory in our heads. And maybe it's a dish that is cooked at your family's house or your own house that triggers something. Or, or maybe it's a smell from, from a childhood uh, that you've experienced in the dirt. Uh, maybe it's a certain smell from, from the outside, from the outdoors, that kind of trigger something in you. Maybe it's a certain perfume or a cologne that reminds you of somebody. See, no matter what it is, uh, we, have this, I, we have smells in our lives, this scent in our lives that triggers something within us. Regardless if it was good or bad, it triggers something in us. And it's no wonder they say that smell the power of scent is actually the most powerful scent out of five that we have because it is so powerfully intrinsically linked to our memory and our emotions. It's powerful. Now, now this is also true for today as we've all experienced, but it was also true throughout the Bible, throughout the entire, uh, throughout the entire scriptures, so we see the power of smell, the power of aroma and scent all throughout the scriptures, starting from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, and even throughout the birth of Jesus, and even in his death that we'll see. And so as we look at our text, we'll, we'll see three things about scent, about aroma, uh, and, th- and three things are this, as we all know. When there's aroma, when there's scent, we first, we inhale it. 
uh, we discover it. Maybe it's a new smell or a scent. We discover there's something in there that we discover within the aroma, and then we become it. We become the aroma. And I'll talk about that as we go through. But I love how Matthew chapter 2 begins. It starts like this. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? That's really important. They ask, Where is the one born King of the Jews? We saw, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, is what the Magi says. See, again, as we talked about throughout this series, is that uh, this was a time when the Roman Empire had control really throughout the entire ancient Near East, ancient Palestine, where this story is being set. They had control and, and particularly oppressed the people that were living in those regions, uh, in our case, uh, the Jewish people. The Romans uh, had the power and control. And, and what the Romans did was that they appointed this guy named Herod, and they appointed him king of the Jews. And yet, even though Herod was technically a Jew and, and king of the Jew at that, he was appointed by the Romans, where he was actually still employed by the Romans. And, and his job was just to make sure that the Jewish people, his people, were behaving well. They weren't stirring up any trouble. And as long as King Herod, king of the Jews, did that, then he would get paid and he would receive all the benefits of being an employee for Rome. And so just notice this in what I just read. The Magi came, and we don't actually, I hate to break this to you, we don't actually know how many there were. I know that we always say the three wise men. That's kind of a guess. Uh, because there was three gifts, but we don't, we don't really know. The word magi is plural, uh, but there were magi, there were wise men that came from the east uh, to Bethlehem. And, and this is the best part. They go, to, they go to Herod, and maybe this is just funny to me. They go to Herod, titled King of the Jews. Well, this is the place where, where Herod reigns, where he has control, where he's considered king. And yet here are these outsiders, the Magi, they go up to Herod, king of the Jews, and says and asks this question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Where is the one born king of the Jews? Can you see how offensive this question may have been? I mean, here are these outsiders, uh, probably from Persia, from modern-day Iran, goes to Herod's region where he's considered and he actually forced people to call him king of the Jews. And yet here are these outsiders saying, hey, Herod, you are the king of the title king of the Jew. But really, where's the real king of the Jews? And so this is a very highly offensive question. I remember a few years ago uh, when I was wor working at a church in Bellevue, I was a pastor in Bellevue uh, before Bethany, uh, and the school down the street from the church that I was at it was a private high school, a Christian private high school, and they asked me, they said, hey, we need a Bible teacher for this semester. Would you want to teach Bible just one class a week? Uh, and I said, never taught before uh, as a teacher, never been a high school teacher, uh, but I'll give it a shot. They needed somebody. Uh, and so I ended up being a high school teacher, just part-time, just teaching a Bible class there. And I remember my second day teaching, I didn't really know what I was doing. 
I just knew that they needed somebody, so I kind of filled the spot. And I was up in front of the class, and I was lecturing, probably teaching an invigorous, incredible Bible lesson to high schoolers, as you can imagine. Uh, and there was this teacher that was just looking through the door, uh, kind of confused. And I kept on looking over as I was teaching the Bible and kind of ignored her. And then finally, as I kept going, she enters the room, my classroom, stops the class as I was mid-lecturing and says, wait a minute, stop. Where is your teacher? And I said, I was really confused. Like, what are you talking about? I, I am the teacher. And for a second, she thought I was joking. And apparently, she thought I was a high school student. Uh, coming in, and the class was missing a teacher, and they said, where is your teacher? And I finally, and the, and the students were, had to convince this colleague, colleague of mine, no, he's new, but he's actually our teacher. <laughs> and I thought it was funny, and my students never let that one down. It's still to this day when I see them, they joke about that. And of course, that wasn't necessarily offensive to me, but I would imagine King Herod, a very similar circumstance where he was actually the king of the Jew, and yet here are these people saying, okay, where is the real king? And of course, Herod was not only upset, but he was threatened. And so the strategy for Herod was to pretend, as we read on, uh, to pretend that he wasn't threatened by this news of Jesus. In fact, he told the Magi, he said, hey, once you find this Jesus, this king of the Jew, hey, come find me. Let me know where he's at so then I can go and worship him too. And obviously later we find out the reason why he really wanted to know where Jesus was was so he can actually kill him. And so this is the backdrop uh, of the story that we're working with here. This is the time and culture and the people in the midst of our text that we are in. And so we jump down to Matthew again, chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, the verse that we read together. It says, it says this, On coming to the house, they saw the child, the Magi, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented Jesus, they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, because they knew that, they, that Herod wanted to kill Jesus, they returned to their country by another route. See, the Magi came to bow down and worship Jesus by bringing him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. See, again, as a reminder, the Magi, they weren't Jews. They were actually Gentiles, and they practiced uh, astrology, and that's why they were called Magi. They're, they practiced astrology and sorcery, and they came from the east, walking probably about a month's, month's worth of travel, of walk, to bow down and worship Jesus. And know that Magi, in, in their country, in their homeland, they were known as someone prestigious, as intellectual, as having knowledge of all fields of, of religion, of science, of math, of philosophy. So these were well-respected men. And yet here are these well-respected men putting their life on the line, coming into a foreign land, finding this baby boy named Jesus and bowing and worshiping at his feet. Do you see how incredible this picture is? 
And if we gloss over it, we miss it. But when we take this backdrop under consideration, it's a big, big deal that this is happening. And so a lot of us, we know what these gifts might look like. We know what gold might have looked like. Uh, but frankincense and myrrh uh, are a little unfamiliar to us in the West today. See, frankincense and myrrh, they're very similar products. Like gold, they carried value and they were used as, as currency and trade. But they were also used as like a scent and like incense for people to smell. And it's that smell from these uh, that brought worth to these objects, to the frankincense and myrrh. They had med- uh, medicinal benefits, what they believed. They, they were used, these two ingredients, spices, were in religious ceremonies uh, and in really in, in practical daily use. And, and I just learned this. Apparently, uh, the women would actually use frankincense, mash it down, burn it, and use the ashes for eyeshadow. So pro tip, if you guys need eyeshadow, that might work for you. And so these very gifts that the wise men, that the Magi brought, they had very significant messages. And so the gold, everyone knew in the ancient Near East, it represented royalty and wealth. And so the, the, the gift that they brought symbolized saying that, Jesus, you are worthy of this gift. You are worthy of king. This is a gift fit for a king. And the gold was a symbol of Jesus' kingship. Frankincense, again, was a resin. It was like a gum found inside the bark of certain trees. And they would take it out, and they would burn it. And when they would burn it, the smoke would release this very pleasing fragrance. And it says all over, even in Exodus, all throughout the Old Testament, that the, that the burning of frankincense, that the fragrance of it, the smell, the aroma was pleasing to God. And so they used frankincense and, and, and sprinkled it over the animal sacrifices. And so anytime they had animal sacrifices, uh, the smell and the smoke and the aroma would just permeate all over. And it's that scent that God would say, that is pleasing and honorable to me. And so this idea of frankincense symbolized worship, that Jesus was worthy of their worship. And then myrrh was also used in a very similar sense, uh, I use the word sense, in in a very similar way, where it evoked smell and aroma. And so they actually used it for embalming. So anytime someone would die, uh, in their burial, they would put mirror all over them. And so that way, as a body de- decomposed, that it would release a, a better smell as opposed to a rotting body. And so what's interesting about mirror is that it symbolized death. It symbolized death. And, and bringing it to Jesus, it was almost this prophetic word saying that as king, you are worthy of worship but we know ultimately that you will end up dying a death, really, for us. See, the point of all these aromas from the frankincense and mirror is that it was supposed to be all-consuming, that it filled the earth, that it filled the land, it filled the air, it filled their lungs, which evoked something in their memories, which evoked something in their emotions. And in this case, they were reminded by the aroma that Jesus was king, that Jesus was worthy of their worship, that Jesus was going to be sacrificed 
to death for them, for us, for you and me to bring about salvation. And again, this was a big statement. And more than a statement through these gifts, it was a declaration. It was a declaration of who they believed Jesus to be. And it was a dangerous, bold declaration with Herod looming in the background. See, Herod did anything he could to keep his title as king. I mean, he would kill people uh, that were surrounding him that threatened that or that would uh, oppose that. I mean, it says in ancient antiquity that Herod actually killed his own wife. Herod actually killed his own three sons because he was in fear that they might take over his kingship. So these magi, these Gentiles, put their life on the line and they sacrificed so much to bow down and worship Jesus. Big idea of sacrifice through these gifts. Frankincense and myrrh symbolize sacrifice of what Jesus did. And this is a sacrifice that they presented, that they endured to bow down and worship Jesus. See, sacrifice and worship are inherently connected. Sacrifice and worship are always connected. And we know this because what you sacrifice for, whatever that might be, whatever you sacrifice for becomes the object of your worship. And we can think about that in our own lives, not even just in the spiritual sense, uh, but the things that we sacrifice so much for, uh, the intention that we give to, the money, the time, the resources, that becomes the center of our life, of our attention, whether that's good or that's bad. See, because we're all designed, as Pascal, a philosopher, says, uh, with this God-shaped void, a God-shaped hole in our hearts, all of us, and so we spend our entire lives trying to fill that hole, whatever it is, and oftentimes it isn't with the one that can fulfill it, God. It's with other things that we end up uh, sacrificing our, our life to, really worshiping, which ultimately, we would never say this out loud, becomes an idol in our lives. And, and I don't know what that is for you, and oftentimes it's something different for me as well. But maybe it's upward mobility. We crave upward mobility. Maybe it's a dream that we want to accomplish. Maybe it's a relationship that we want to have or to amend or to heal or whatever it is. Maybe it's financial goals. Maybe it's a career goal. Maybe it's an education goal. Whatever it is, oftentimes we believe that the, that the God-shaped whole can be satisfied with those things and those people and those objects. And the reality is, at the end of the day, the more and more we try to fill that God-shaped void with something or somebody or somewhere else, we become significantly disappointed because that's not the way we were created to be. So the question, kind of the application question is, what do you sacrifice for? What do you give your attention to? Because ultimately, that's the question of, what is it that you worship? What is it that you have on that pedestal? And to care for something and somebody and to provide and to love, that's all good. That's not bad. As a matter of fact, we're created to, to do that. We should do that. 
But what is at the top of that pedestal? As created people, is it our creator? And that's the question. Because if it's not, we will be severely disappointed. And next we get to discover the antidote, the antidote is discovering the need to lean on the true sacrifice of Jesus. I love in Ephesians chapter, two, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, it says this. It says, and walk, away, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we move on from the sacrificial system with frankincense and myrrh being poured onto the animal sacrifices. And we move on and Jesus is claiming, now we don't have to do that anymore. I'm going on the cross and I'm going to be sacrificed. And the words that he says after, his de- after he was crucified was, it is finished. He says, it is finished. That sacrificial system is finished. The thing for us to, to pursue, the, this, this desire in our hearts to, to always uh, accomplish something, to do something, to fill something. Jesus is saying is, through my cross and what I've done, it is finished. You no longer have to do that. Discover my aroma, who I am, and lean into that and that alone. And that will what, is what transforms your life. See, it sounds easy because oftentimes when it says, once you become a Christian, you don't have to worry about all that. All you got to do is worry about loving Jesus. And to a certain degree, that is true. And to a certain degree, it is easier. But that also requires sacrifice. The biggest sacrifice that requires in us following Jesus and leaning on his life, death, and resurrection is this whole idea of letting go. Of letting go. And sometimes that means letting go of relationships. Sometimes that means letting go of, uh, of aspirations, of control. As human beings, we love control, don't we? And anytime we lose control, our sense of anxiety rises. And so Jesus says, my work on the cross is sufficient. You can let go, surrender your life, and be consumed by my aroma. And as we lean into that, not only do we take upon Christ's aroma through his death, his sacrifice that releases the, the aroma, we become that aroma ourselves. Anybody here love, this is kind of a switch. Anybody here love the food pho? Like, have you guys ever had pho before? It's one of my favorite foods of all times, especially in the wintertime. Uh, and every time I go to eat pho, uh, I have like a rule that I do. If I have a jacket on or like a sweater on, uh, I always take it off before I go into the restaurant. Yeah? I mean, that's, that's kind of a pro tip, right? And, and so... Because here's the deal. Every time you go to a flower restaurant and you eat, uh, you're just covered in that aroma, that smell. And so I know every time I go into the restaurant, I always take off a jacket or a sweater or whatever it is so I don't come out uh, smelling like the food. But see, the whole idea of Christ's aroma is that we would put it on and that everywhere we would go, 
that we would smell like Christ is in our lives. Because sometimes we can go one of two ways. Christ can be in our lives, and we can, in reality, we can make Christ smell really bad with the way we live, with the way we treat people. On the other side, depending on the way we live and the way we treat people, we can make Christ smell really good and pleasing and attractive to others. And in 2 Corinthians it says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are, God the, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. See, Paul talks a lot about this triumphal entry. See, beginning of the verse, it says that we, uh, it talks about this triumphal procession that is used to spread the knowledge of God and God's aroma. And so he's borrowing from what the Romans did during this time. So any time that the Romans would defeat a nation or a region or a people group, they would have a procession, and they would literally call it a triumphal procession. And so the procession looked very specifically. The Roman guards, the Roman soldiers, the Roman higher-ups, the officials, they would be in this parade. Really, it would be like a parade. And they'd be in front of the parade, marching through the city that they conquered. Now, at the end of the parade what were the, their enemies or the people that they conquered shackled up, literally being dragged throughout the city. So then they would be shamed and people in that city that was conquered would see and they would know that there's a new sheriff in town, that there was a new, new people in town that had control. And, and, and so have any of you guys, did you guys go to the Sounders Victory Parade? Anybody? Well, yeah, a few of you guys. Yeah, it was nothing like that, okay? This was meant to be demeaning. This was meant to be domineering uh, and, and shaming for the people that they conquered. And so as they would drag them down, you can see that if you're the audience, you, you saw your own people, your own friends, maybe even your own family member see that victory march, but it was all but a victory to them. It was painful. It was disgusting. It was hurtful. And what, Je- what Paul is saying that is that Jesus comes and brings a different victory march, a different procession, something that is not disgusting to them, but actually very attractive, filled with this aroma that's pleasing to people. It looks very, very differently. And as we clothe ourselves with Christ's death, life, and resurrection, and we release the aroma. The question is this. The question is, is the aroma that you put off, that you give, is that pleasing? Is that attractive? Is that what people want to be a part of? Or is it nasty? Is it ugly? Does it turn people away from the very message that you want to bring about the uniqueness and the love and the compassion of Jesus? See, to me, the language of smell and aroma is a perfect illustration of all of this. Again, when you walk into a room, do you leave an odor with your faith? Or do you leave an aroma that people want to latch onto? There's practical ways that we can do this, that we already do. 
You know, like when we provide needs for refugee families coming to Seattle, like our giving tree that we've been doing, that's an aroma that's pleasing to Christ, that people are attracted to. When we become a voice for the voiceless and stand up against injustice, that is a kind of aroma of Christ that people are attracted to. When we give to the foster children through our giving tree again with the, with the clothing and, and different type of needs, that leaves an aroma of Christ that people are attracted to. Or when we side with those that are marginalized due to the color of their skin, their social status, their gender, their whatever it is, we leave the aroma of Christ that people are attracted to. I was watching the news just last night, actually. Uh, and I don't know if you guys heard of this, but there's a mosque in Redmond that was vandalized. Not once, but twice. And the second time, it was, uh, it was kind of interesting. They invited the community, whoever, it didn't matter who their, what their religion was, was to come in solidarity and to show love and support to a community that was, that's been hurt so badly. And so the, the, the people at the mosque, um, they set up wet cement for people, for people that want to stand by them, stand by their side, to put their hand in the wet cement to symbolize that, hey, we have our differences, but at the end of the day, I care for you. I care for you. And, and on this one news channel, uh, they had... I don't know if it was a church or if it was a small group, but there was a small group of a Christian church that came to that mosque to show their support for this church. And they put their hand on that wet cement to say, you know what? You've been hurt and therefore I am with you. And put their hands on that wet cement. And I looked at that and I saw that and I said, in this world of so much polarization of you versus me, of them versus us, the fact that there's Christians, people that followed after Jesus' own heart would enter into that broken situation and say, at the end of the day, yes, we believe the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, his birth, life, death, and resurrection. But ironically, that's what compels them to be there, to show their solidarity with people that have been hurt. And I can imagine that that leaves an aroma that is pleasing to others, that attracts people to the message of Jesus. And this happens even today. You know, even earlier today, we ask for volunteers at the Christmas, Christmas Eve service. Or sometimes we ask for volunteers in children's ministry or to set up and tear down and just know that we're not looking for more babysitters. We're not looking for people just to, just to set up stuff on the stage, although that's part of it. But it's an invitation to say, I want to be a part of God's story and helping people draw closer to Christ and their families and their children. That's why we ask for people to volunteer. Yes, there's a need, but it's also an invitation saying, be part of that story that, that brings Christ and makes him beautiful. And so we invite you to that. And so again, as we go back, this idea of the gifts of the frankincense and myrrh had everything to do with sacrifice. And in that sacrifice had everything to do with aroma that's pleasing to God. And the question for us 
is that do we take upon Christ's aroma or Christ, the Christ sacrifice for us? Do we, do we take that on? Do we put it on? And do we share that with others? Or conversely, are we preoccupied with something else, with somebody else? Especially in this Advent season, I really encourage us to stay engaged with the story of Jesus because that changes our lives. That's what transforms us. That's what makes us a new creation. And so I'm going to invite the, the band up right now as we close and respond. As we sing this last couple songs, that we would think about that. As followers of Jesus, are we giving off the aroma of Christ? And for those of you that maybe you're here and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're here anyways. But maybe the question is this. Maybe the question is, do I want to start? Maybe is this what's going to change my life? I want, I want some of that. I want to be a part of that. Maybe that's the question to ponder as we sing these last songs.